0: It's the Victorian Variety Show. I must frankly own that if I had known beforehand that this book would have cost me the labor which it has, I should never have been courageous enough to commence it. What moved me, in the first instance, to attempt a work like this was the discomfort and suffering which I had seen brought upon men and women by household mismanagement. I have always thought that there is no more fruitful source of family discontent than a housewife's badly cooked dinners and untidy ways. Men are now so well served out of doors, at their clubs, well-ordered taverns, and dining houses, that in order to compete with the attractions of these places, a mistress must be thoroughly acquainted with the theory and practice of cookery, as well as be perfectly conversant with all the other arts of making and keeping a comfortable home." This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast, in which I take an in-depth look at aspects of life during the Victorian era that often don't get as much attention as perhaps they should in an academic setting or in media representations of that time period. Because even if we didn't know what these phenomena were called or the people involved, they influence something that's still often very much with us in some way. My name is Marissa and the excerpt I just read is taken from the preface of The Book of Household Management by Mrs. Isabella Beaton, which was published originally in 24 separate installments from 1859 to 1861 and published for the first time in its entirety in 1861. I have been curious about this book for some time because of my desire to do more episodes on Victorian-era cuisine, but I gotta say this is a pretty hefty book. I've seen recent hardcover editions that are 500-600 to 600 pages long, which to me is pretty substantial. But I'm looking at a copy from 1899 that uh, is on archive.org that is over 1800 pages long, which I will include a link to in the show notes along with all of the other sources that I looked at in putting this episode together. And my research process turned out to be more complex than I'd anticipated. So even though I was originally planning in this episode to give you maybe a little background on Mrs. Beaton and read a few of her recipes, I've decided instead to do a two-parter, focusing on the woman behind the book in this episode and delving more into the text in my next episode in two weeks. So who was this Mrs. Beaton whom I speak of? Born Isabella Mary Mason in 1836, she lost her father at a young age, and her mother, who was pregnant at the time and possibly overwhelmed from trying to run her late husband's business, sent Isabella and her younger sister to live with relatives. However, after their mother remarried, the girls returned to live with her, and their mother and her second husband, who'd been a widower with four children, went on to have 13 more children. By my count, that's a total of 20 children. In an article called Mrs. Beaton and the Art of Household Management, Catherine Hughes puts the total number of children at 21. She's probably right, but whether the exact total was 20 or 21, I think we can agree that there were a lot of children in that household. Although Isabella was instrumental in looking after her younger siblings, which, as Wikipedia notes, she once referred to as a, quote, living cargo of children, end quote, she spent part of her teenage years at boarding schools in England and Germany, where she studied pastry making in addition to piano, French, and German. In 1856, Isabella married Samuel Orchard Beaton, who published the first British edition of Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe, and two journals, the English Woman's Domestic Magazine, which I'll refer to from here on as EDM for short, a publication aimed primarily at young, middle-class women that sold around 50,000 issues a month in the mid-1850s, and that was considered a commercial success at the time, apparently, and Zone, which as you might have guessed from the title, contain both fiction and nonfiction pieces on topics of interest to preteen and teenage boys. Wikipedia describes Samuel as, quote, a discreet but firm believer in the equality of women, end quote. And even though at least one scholar has hypothesized that Samuel fooled around with prostitutes prior to their marriage, and unknowingly passed syphilis on to Isabella, which may have led to the death of their firstborn infant son in 1857, and contributed possibly to several miscarriages Isabella had later on. Samuel persuaded his wife to contribute to EDM, and it seems that in many respects, their marriage was relatively egalitarian for the time. Isabella started working for the magazine as a translator of French fiction, but several months later, she took over the cookery column, which seems like it had been fairly stagnant for some time after the previous columnist had left, and the household section. Apparently, Isabella wasn't cooking much at that time, and according to Hughes, there is evidence to suggest that she was never really that much of a cook. In fact, her first recipe for the magazine for a quote-unquote good sponge cake was apparently so bad that Hughes says she had to print an apology for it in the following issue. Possibly as a result, she requested recipes from readers and copied recipes from prominent 18th and 19th century chefs, including Elizabeth Raffeld, author of The Experienced English Housekeeper, which was first published in 1769, Eliza Acton, writer of Modern Cookery for Private Families, which was a bestseller for some time in England after it was first published in 1845, and Charles L. May Francatelli, to whom I devoted an episode this past May. According to Hughes, Isabella largely, quote-unquote, lifted these recipes without crediting her sources. And, as someone who's admittedly a bit neurotic about crediting their sources... I do find this troubling. However, Hughes suggests that she got away with this due, in part, to weak copyright laws at the time. And also, Wikipedia notes that a family friend named Henrietta English basically encouraged Isabella to plagiarize, telling her at one point that, quote, Cookery is a science that is only learnt by long experience and years of study, which, of course, you have not had. Therefore, my advice would be compile a book from receipts from a variety of the best books published on cookery, and heaven knows there is a great variety for you to choose from. End quote. Now, this reminds me of something I've heard, and maybe you have too many times, namely that there are, quote, no new ideas under the sun. End quote. And I mean... I've had art classes in which the assignment was to copy a classic work, so I guess it can be a good way to learn your craft as long as you use it maybe as a springboard for your own future work and you don't actually try to pass someone's work off as your own. I mean, that's a big one. But... Hughes notes that even today, it can be difficult to prove that a cooking recipe is quote-unquote original, and according to fine law, a recipe is generally not considered a quote-unquote literary work in the way that, say, a story or a novel is. So single recipes generally don't receive much, if any, copyright protection. So even though I don't believe there's ever an excuse for plagiarism, It does sound to me like attitudes toward copyright back then were somewhat different than they are now. And it also seems like Isabella was maybe doing what she felt she should be doing to some extent. Rather than trying to claim other people's work as her own because she lacked ethics or something like that. But I can't emphasize this enough, folks. Cite your sources, please. Anyway even though it would probably be an understatement to say that most of Isabella's early content for EDM doesn't score points for its originality, you might say. Its layout differed from that found in many other cookery publications of the time by listing the ingredients before the process, which Hughes says helped housewives ensure they had everything they needed before they started, including estimated costs per serving and the number of servings per dish, and adding timings and temperatures that Hughes says were more accurate than those provided by most of Isabella's predecessors. As a result... Hughes tells us Isabella's recipes were straightforward enough for those with little to no cooking experience to follow, which was important because in the 1850s, and really for the first time in history, many middle-class young women like Isabella were attending boarding schools rather than learning household skills from their mothers. And... Because the Industrial Revolution was in full swing and people were traveling more and there was expanded imperialism, a lot of women were moving with their new husbands away from their families to cities or even to Australia, India, or other colonies. So they needed assistance in learning the skills required to be quote unquote proper housewives, you might say. In addition to the cookery column, Isabella also played an important role in the redevelopment of EDM's fashion section, serving as co-editor with her husband. In addition, in 1861, the couple founded a weekly fashion and culture magazine called The Queen, the ladies' Newspaper, which lived on well into the 20th century, but underwent a number of transformations over the years. For example, its name was shortened to Queen in the 1950s, and it later became part of Harper's Bazaar in the UK. According to Wikipedia, quote, Isabella brought an efficiency and strong business acumen to Samuel's normally disorganized and financially wasteful approach. She joined her husband at work, traveling daily by train to the office, where her presence caused a stir among commuters, most of whom were male. End quote. However, Hughes suggests that the popularity of Isabella's cookery column in EDM ultimately inspired Samuel to devise what Hughes refers to as a so-called spin-off. Et voila! The Book of Household Management was born in November of 1859, originally in the form of monthly installments that I mentioned at the top of this episode of 48 pages each that appeared as supplements to EDM. These installments were published as a single collection for the first time in October of 1861, and, as you might expect, the book contains hundreds of recipes and scores of beautiful colored plates and illustrations showing what finished dishes should look like, which I remember seeing two years ago before I even put out a full episode of this podcast, detailed illustrations of cooking equipment, and advice on preparing menus. But in addition to its comprehensive coverage of a wide variety of meals and cuisines... The book included tips on etiquette and behavior, managing domestic servants, homeopathic medicine, and even legal memoranda. So basically, it's like an encyclopedia. And despite the fact that the book included helpful information for wealthy women who could afford to hire help, Isabella is often portrayed as a proponent of household economy, who included plenty of clear instructions so readers who weren't able to afford, say, a maid or a butler, would be able to carry out household responsibilities themselves. And, in a blog post called The Culinary Chronicles of Mrs. Beaton, Miss Windsor explains that Isabella would often suggest more affordable, but nonetheless satisfying, alternatives if a recipe called for pricier ingredients. According to an article on the Discover Britain site called Isabella Beaton and the Art of Household Management, Mrs. Beaton's Book of Household Management sold an estimated 60,000 copies in its first year alone, and it seems its success lay not only in the wealth of information that it included, but also was due to Isabella's tone, which, despite the fact that it might come across as stern and bossy at times, also gives the sense that the writer was on the reader's side, according to Hughes who says that Isabella, quote, wanted women to feel that keeping house was just as important as any man's job, and she famously compared the mistress of a household with a commander of an army. She also explained that women needed to be good housekeepers in order to ensure that their husbands returned home promptly at the end of the day, rather than lingering in taverns and dining houses, end quote. Miss Windsor also believes much of Isabella's writing, quote, emanates an extraordinary comedic flair, end quote. Again, I will be reading more excerpts from her book in my next episode, so I won't say much more about what people have said about her tone at this point, because I like listeners to interpret for themselves as much as possible. But it definitely seems like the Book of Household Management had a, I apologize for this mispronunciation probably, but je ne sais quoi aspect about it, that contributed to its success, which continued to grow over time. Unfortunately, Isabella was not able to enjoy much of this success. Sadly, in 1865, after contracting a bacterial infection shortly after giving birth to her second surviving child, Isabella died at the age of 28. So even though the tome was updated regularly, because Samuel, according to Wikipedia, sold the copyright to all of his publications to avoid bankruptcy in 1866, a year after his wife's death, many subsequent editions, which have continued to appear to the present day, featured updates made by a variety of journalists. Although Wikipedia explains that earlier editions included an obituary for Isabella, later publishers removed it, due to a desire to prevent readers from imagining, quote, perhaps even as late as 1915 that some mob-capped matriarch was out there still keeping an eye on them, end quote. And even though the name Mrs. Beaton has become almost synonymous with authority over home and hearth, Hughes believes many readers either didn't know or didn't care that Isabella herself wasn't around to update later editions, as long as the advice in the book remained relevant. In a way, there's something impressive about achieving that kind of posthumous fame, But I also get the sense that once Isabella became a brand, if you will, the fact that she actually was a living, breathing woman kind of got lost in the mix, which I also find troubling. So my feelings about Isabella are complicated. And learning about Mrs. Beaton made me realize that even though there are aspects of life during the Victorian era that I think do merit our criticism, like if we're discussing imperialism... There are also cases in which we should be careful about reading too much from our contemporary times into the lives of the people who lived 150 or more years ago, and this is one of them. I probably sound like a broken record, but again, I can't defend plagiarism. But at the same time, I think it's important to take how plagiarism was treated at the time into consideration, and I do think she added some elements that set her apart from her predecessors. Also, the Discover Britain piece suggests that because everything Mrs. Beaton was covering was stereotypical, you might call it women's work, it could be very easy to criticize her from a feminist perspective. I mean, come on, saying you have to keep your husbands happy so they don't go out to taverns and such. Yeah. But again... She was a so-called career woman at a time when the socially acceptable thing for most middle to upper class women to do was to spend most of their time at home and be good housewives. And if anything, it seems Isabella's clear guidance gave these women a greater sense of control over their environments. In addition, Even though it did seem at times to me like Samuel Beaton was the mastermind behind some of his wife's work, and it does sound like he found a way to profit off of it, I also got the sense that he needed her and respected her as a result. And finally, I think the fact that Mrs. Beaton accomplished as much as she did by the age of 28 by itself is pretty impressive. But now, I would love to know what you think email me at the Victorian Variety Show at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash marissa hyphen d96 slash message. You can also follow me on Twitter if you don't already at twitter.com slash victorianvariety1 or if you're on threads, you can follow me there now at at marissadf13. Although I've mainly put random thoughts and stuff about my life on there so far. So it's not devoted to the podcast like my Twitter account is. But I'm still kind of finding my way over there. And if you are too, I would love to interact with you. And if you'd like to support the show financially, there are a few ways you can do that. You can become a monthly supporter for as little as 99 cents U.S. a month at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash Marissa D96 slash support, buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash df 13 or make a donation on my Linktree page or on the Good Pods app. Another free way to support this show is to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, Podchaser, or or wherever you're listening, as that helps this show reach more listeners. And finally, I read a chapter for an audiobook version of Washington Irving's The Chronicles of Wolfert's Roost and Other Papers that's completed and is available to download for free in LibriVox's catalog. So if you'd like to check that out, I will leave a link to that in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and for all of your feedback and support. I hope you enjoyed getting to know Mrs. Beaton, and I'm really looking forward to delving deeper into the Book of Household Management in my next episode, so I hope you'll join me for that. But I'm going to end this episode with a taste of what's to come. This excerpt appears toward the end of the first chapter of the Book of Household Management, called The Mistress and even though I will probably discuss this chapter in more depth in my next episode, I wanted to include this portion here, because while I wouldn't call this passage feminist, not by a long shot, nor do I think it's necessarily realistic in a modern context, I do feel it gives us a good sense of what was expected of middle-to-upper-class women during Victorian times, and also... I think it does contain little glimpses of reasons why this book was appealing to so many women of the time and in the decades that followed. She ought always to remember that she is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega in the government of her establishment and that it is by her conduct that its whole internal policy is regulated. She is, therefore, a person of far more importance in a community than she usually thinks she is. On her pattern, her daughters model themselves. By her counsels, they are directed. Through her virtues, all are honored. Her children rise up and call her blessed, Her husband also, and he praiseth her. Therefore, let each mistress always remember her responsible position, never approving a mean action, nor speaking an unrefined word. Let her conduct be such that her inferiors may respect her, and such as an honorable and right-minded man may look for in his wife and the mother of his children. Let her think of the many compliments and the sincere homage that have been paid to her sex by the greatest philosophers and writers, both in ancient and modern times. Let her not forget that she has to show herself worthy of Campbell's compliment when he said, The world was sad, the garden was a-wild, and man the hermit sighed, till woman smiled. Let her prove herself, then, the happy companion of man, and able to take unto herself the praises of the pious prelate, Jeremy Taylor, who says, A good wife is heaven's last best gift to man, his angel and minister of graces innumerable, his gem of many virtues, his casket of jewels. Her voice is sweet music. Her smiles his brightest day. Her kiss, the guardian of his innocence. Her arms, the pale of his safety, the balm of his health, the balsam of his life. Her industry, his surest wealth. Her economy, his safest steward. Her lips, his faithful counselors. Her bosom, the softest pillow of his cares and her prayers, the ablest advocates of heaven's blessings on his head. Cherishing then, in her breast, the respected utterances of the good and the great, let the mistress of every house rise to the responsibility of its management, so that, in doing her duty to all around her, she may receive the genuine reward of respect, love, and affection.